Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about world affairs and the people who shape it. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch, and in this show we discuss topical global issues and have in-depth conversations with personalities in foreign policy. Global Dispatches is presented in partnership with Humanity in Action, an international educational organization, and I am a Humanity in Action senior fellow. My guest today, Max Boot, is a foreign policy commentator and historian. Just this week, he was named a contributing writer to the op-ed page of the Washington Post. Max has authored several books. His most recent is titled The Road Not Taken, Edward Lansdale and the American Tragedy in Vietnam. Lansdale was a CIA officer who was the inspiration behind the title character of the famous Graham Greene novel, The Quiet American. As Max explains, Lansdale pioneered a, quote, hearts and minds approach to the Vietnam quandary and sought to avoid a massive American military buildup in Vietnam, but he was ultimately, of course, overruled. We discuss this history in detail and, of course, the relevance of Lansdale to American foreign policy today before pivoting to a conversation about Max's own background, including his own recent intellectual evolution. And here, Max explains how the Trump administration is causing him to rethink certain assumptions he once held as a movement conservative and Republican. It's a great conversation with someone who is able to exert a deal of influence over the foreign policy debate here in the United States, and I think you will find it interesting. As always, before we begin, please feel free to reach out to me via globaldispatchespodcast.com. Thank you to everyone who is leaving reviews on iTunes. I so appreciate it. As I mentioned, it is a good way of helping to improve the visibility of the show among people who are looking for foreign policy podcasts. I so appreciate all of you who are leaving reviews on iTunes. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Now, here is my conversation with Max Boot. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Edward Lansdale was this legendary covert operative during the Cold War who was said to be the model for both the quiet American and the ugly American. He was somebody who masterminded the defeat of a communist insurgency in the Philippines in the early 1950s, and as a result of that, earned a ticket to Saigon in the summer of 1954, right after the French defeat of Dien Bien Phu. And over the next couple of years, Lansdale proceeded to create, uh, with the help of No Dinh Diem, this new state of South Vietnam. But then things went south after he left at the end of 1956. Diem became more uh, authoritarian, got into a clash with the Kennedy administration, and the Kennedys disregarded Lansdale's advice not to back a military coup against ZM in the fall of 1963. After ZM was overthrown, the consequences of everybody as disastrous as Lansdale had warned, 
South Vietnam basically disintegrated. North Vietnam stepped up its aggression. And Lyndon Johnson decided to send American combat troops to rescue the anti-communist cause. That was the last thing that Edward Lansdale ever wanted to see. He didn't want to see half a million American troops thrashing around the jungles of South Vietnam. And he consistently warned General William Westmoreland and Lyndon Johnson and others that they weren't going to win the war just by stacking up body counts, that they had to uh, offer an idea and an ideal that would win the support of the South Vietnamese population. But his advice was ignored. And so ultimately, at the end of the day, his was a tragic story of, of the road not taken, as I uh, call it in the title of my book. Well, what convinced Lansdale that Diem was a candidate, a figure worthy of, of backing? Well, in the summer of 1954, when uh, Lansdale arrived in uh, South Vietnam, there were not a lot of credible nationalist, non-communist political leaders on the horizon. Ho Chi Minh obviously had the most credibility at that point, having orchestrated the defeat of the French. And Diem was actually one of the few figures who was both anti-colonialist and anti-communist. And so he, he, I mean, Lansdale did not appoint him prime minister, but once he was appointed, Lansdale concluded that he was the only real candidate around to create this new state of South Vietnam, and that with some mentoring and some tough love, uh, that he could actually become an effective leader. And, you know, at that point, nobody expected that ZM would last nine weeks, much less nine years. And the fact that he lasted that long was in no small measure due to the influence that Lansdale exerted over him uh, in those early years. See, it, it's interesting. So, some the these stories and, and this history is somewhat fresh in my mind, having sort of watched that 18-hour Ken Burns documentary. Um, and one of one of the conclusions, at least I drew, was that uh, that ZM was not the most credible uh, figure to lead his country. Obviously, what succeeded him was not much better. Um, right. but well, that's that's the key point, and, and and I mean, I should certainly stress that ZM had a lot of weaknesses, which Lansdale recognized. That he was, you know, previously he had mentored Ramon Magsaysay, who became president of the Philippines, who was a charismatic, outgoing politician, whereas ZM was this kind of reclusive. Catholic Confucian Mandarin uh, who didn't want to go out among the people and was very shy and cerebral. And so, you know, he had a lot of defects. But basically, Lansdale's conclusion is that there wasn't anybody better around and that that ZM actually had some virtues that were often overlooked, including his honesty. He wasn't corrupt and he had a genuine nationalist credibility. I mean, it's interesting that you cite the, uh, the Ken Burns, Lynn Novak Vietnam War series because it kind of reflects the the conventional wisdom on ZM, which I think is schizophrenic, on the one hand, very critical of ZM. And, and there was a lot to be critical of, no doubt, especially during the crisis uh, sparked by, by the uprising of militant Buddhists in 1963. And, and it was, you know, at that time, the Kennedy administration concluded that in order to save the anti-communist cause in South Vietnam, it had to overthrow ZM. And that's basically, you know, the viewpoint echoed by, by the Ken Burns series. But, you know, if if CM was so bad, why did the situation get so much worse after he was overthrown? And there's no question that it did, that whatever tenuous stability South Vietnam had disintegrated in the months after his overthrow with military coup following military coup, just as Ed Lansdale had warned. And so I think we need to reexamine CM. I think we focused on his weaknesses uh, and, uh, and his defects, uh, but we've also overlooked uh, his uh, the, the the strengths and virtues that he had and at the end of the day it wasn't you know it wasn't a uh, 
the search for a leader for South Vietnam wasn't a contest that occurred in a vacuum. The question was not was whether ZM was a perfect leader, it was whether you know there was a better alternative. And I think that history pretty clearly indicated in the years after he was overthrown uh, that there was not. So what was Lansdale's recommendations to the, the U.S. government, how they ought to try to go about beating this uh, somewhat nascent communist insurgency? He recommended focusing on the political side, on governance, on trying to foster a stable, legitimate, and popular government in South Vietnam that could win the support of its people. And he consistently warned against imagining that bombing North Vietnam or, uh, you know, using massive amounts of firepower in the South, that that could actually defeat the insurgency. Because as he consistently said, uh, the communists have an idea and they won't be, and you can't defeat an idea with bombs. You can only defeat it with better ideas. Uh, but unfortunately, that advice was not listened to. You know, presumably you wrote this, uh, you're an historian and you wrote this, this book as, as a piece of history, but presumably, uh, there are some modern day applications from the lessons that might be drawn. What, what are, are some of the key lessons that you drew from Lansdale's experience as they might be imparted today? Well, remember that today we are embarked on another massive counterinsurgency, this time not against communists as it was in Lansdale's day, but against Islamists. And I think that there are a lot of lessons from the experience of Ed Lansdale that are applicable today, uh, not, you know, when you think about how are we going to win this this insurgency, we're probably not going to win it with American combat troops. We're not going to send hundreds of thousands of American troops to occupy the greater Middle East, you know, been there, done that, tried that, didn't like it, not going to do it again anytime soon. So if we're going to win this war, uh, we're not going to do it with American combat troops. We're going to do it with American advisors, with small teams of American soldiers and diplomats going out into these war-torn lands and trying to buttress their governments in standing up against our common enemies. And if you think about advisors, you have to think about Ed Lansdale, who was one of the premier advisors of the 20th century, right up there with, with T. Lawrence. And I think he offers a lot of uh, a, a lot of lessons, both good and bad. You know, not everything that Ed Lansdale did was successful. I mean, you know, he, he went to war with his own bureaucracy and, and thereby undercut his effectiveness in Washington. He was also hindered in Vietnam by lack of linguistic ability because he didn't speak either French or Vietnamese. But what Ed Lansdale had was this gift for empathy. He could really make friends out of almost anybody, even if he literally did not speak their language. And in many ways, the secret of his success was listening rather than lecturing. And, you know, Americans love to lecture, especially in the developing world. You know, we'd love to go out there from Washington with these non-negotiable lists of demands. And that wasn't the, the Ed Lansdale approach at all. Uh, he, he really befriended people uh, in, in, in countries like the Philippines and South Vietnam and won their trust and therefore uh, got them to follow his advice. And the way he really did that was by listening to them, which wasn't always easy to do with somebody like CM who would, you know, became notorious for these multi-hour long monologues that bored other Americans to distraction, but Lansdale uh, had uh, more patience and probably a stronger bladder, and he would sit there for hour after hour listening to ZM drone on. At the end of that, he would say, well, that's fascinating, Mr. President. If I understand what you're saying, it's X, Y, and Z. And then he would very subtly rephrase what ZM had told him uh, in essentially putting across his own ideas as if they were ZM's. 
So that's a subtle method of operating, but very effective. And I think that's that's something we can learn from today. So, so maybe can, can I push back on on one of, of of your recommendations, your ideas? In that Lansdale seems to be like an exceptional person, like an exceptional human being, and like a one of a kind kind of character. So if he truly is one of a kind, how? Can that be replicated at scale across places like northern Nigeria or the Sahel or or Iraq with sort of these teams of like truly exceptional Americans who know the ins and outs of local politics and are able to, you know, build government institutions while keeping sort of the American footprint extremely light? It seems like an unrealistic um, prospect or, or possibility. I agree. It's very difficult to do. And Lansdale would have been the first to acknowledge that. I mean, I wouldn't say that he was quite one of a kind. I think he was very unusual. But I think that there are other people with kind of Lansdalian characteristics, if you will. And I think we can, uh, if we have the right mindset, we can nurture more of them. I mean, in, in some ways, you know, his use of empathy and, and bonding with people is exactly what case officers in the CIA are are taught to do. And the time that he spent out in uh, in the countryside, really getting to know these places is something that that some uh, civilians in the U.S. government are able to do uh, who have served, especially in places like Iraq and Afghanistan for extended periods. But there's no question that we don't put enough uh, value on what on what Lansdale did. I mean, it's it's pretty interesting to me that now uh, the U.S. Army is setting up these security force assistance brigades, which is uh, at last recognizing the value of military advisors. And that's something that I think is long overdue. But we need much more than military advisors because, you know, it's we can certainly teach these 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 foreign militaries how to march straight and how to fire and maneuver and do all that kind of stuff. But the really important questions have to do with the politics of that country. And where are our political advisors? We don't I mean, we have these military advisors. But we don't have a cadre of political advisors uh, to help these embattled countries on the front lines of the war on terrorism. And I agree, it's very hard to develop them, but you're certainly never going to develop them if you don't try. So is is perhaps one unintended consequence of wanting to sort of follow that that idea and train these cadres of, of military advisors and just frankly get better at, at counterinsurgency, uh, that we might be tempted to sort of do more of it in the future, that like the lesson of Iraq, for example, is not that... Um, we did counterinsurgency poorly, but that we should not have done it, been there in, in the first place. Well, you can certainly make the case that we shouldn't have overthrown the government of uh, Iraq. And that's, you know, in hindsight, that's a, that's a pretty credible case. But remember that uh, so much of the turmoil in the greater Middle East is not really our doing. A lot of it is just from the collapse of states in places like Syria and Somalia, and even to the extent that it is our doing, perhaps in places like Afghanistan or Iraq, we still have to grapple with the consequences. I don't think we have the uh, the head in the sand option of just ignoring what's going on there because it is a major threat uh, to the United States, our allies and our interests. When these countries are not able to police their own borders, uh, they become breeding grounds of international terrorism, uh, transnational crime, disease, all sorts of other ills that we have to grapple with. And what I'm suggesting is that the most effective way to grapple with those problems is not by sending hundreds of thousands of American troops to occupy those countries, but to send relatively small numbers of Ed Lansdale-type advisors who can embed in those countries, get to really know them, uh, get to get to become very closely associated with local leaders and try to buttress them so that those local states are, in fact, doing the heavy lifting in dealing with these uh, security threats that we face. Uh, so as you mentioned at the outset, uh, Ed Lansdale has this um – 
reputation is sort of known in popular culture as the angry American or, or the quiet American subject of that, that Graham Greene novel. I'm wondering if... Def, in, definitely not the angry American, the quiet the, American, the, quiet American. the ugly American. Yeah, yeah pardon, pardon me, I meant the, uh, the, the quiet yeah. American. He wasn't an angry guy. He was... <laughs> Um, he was so, actually pretty even-tempered. Well, so what's his um, legacy like within the the bureaucracy of the say the the CIA today? Is there like a living legacy of of his work? Uh, very little. I mean, he is certainly remembered by some people. But one of the key facts about Edward Lansdale is that he was kind of a born maverick and a troublemaker who was constantly at war with bureaucracy in Washington. Even when he was one of the most effective CIA operators in the world. Uh, he, you know, he was able to win the patronage of Alan Dulles, the CIA director in the 50s. Much of the bureaucracy hated and resented him because he wasn't kind of a traditional spy. And likewise, in the Pentagon, even as he rose to the heights of power in the early 1960s and became one of the most senior officials in charge of special operations and helped to shape the Green Berets and other forces, uh, there was massive resentment of him from, from many people, including his own boss, Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara. And so, you know, I think his, sadly, his, his legacy was stillborn. I mean, he was very effective for a time, especially in the 1950s. But then, you know, he was kind of like an antibody that was rejected uh, by, by the larger governmental bureaucracy. Are, are you hearing from people inside government who are, are reading your book and, and sort of reacting to it? I, I've certainly heard from uh, folks, uh, especially within the military, who are very interested in the message that I have to propound. And I've been also interested uh, to see, I've, I've been giving a number of book talks and doing appearances in uh, New York and Boston, uh, in New York and Washington and heading to Houston and so forth. And at many of these appearances, I, I see Vietnam veterans who come up to me, especially people who are involved in pacification or intelligence, uh, you know, kind of naturally sympathetic to Lansdale and saying, you know, thank goodness somebody is is telling this story because, you know, I've, I've spent decades thinking that Lansdale was a great guy and it was, it, it bothered me that, that he had fallen into obscurity. So it's kind of, an, I think it has some resonance with, with some of these Vietnam vets in particular. Um, so I'd love to switch gears a little bit and learn more about you and, and your background. You're someone I've been reading for years. I, I know that many people listening uh, will will have read your works for, for many years and would love to learn a little more about you. And, and I should say I learned a little bit about your background in your rather revealing foreign policy piece, um, uh, was it, a couple weeks ago, in which you uh, sort of came to terms with your own white privilege. And first, just describe like what compelled you to write that peace in, in foreign policy? It was really a culmination of, of various trends, uh, including the election of, of Donald Trump, which, you know, certainly was not uh, the work exclusively of racists, but certainly did mobilize a, a base of, of racist and xenophobic voters, uh, which I had been, you know, probably uh, uh, blind to, uh, to some extent in the past. And then of course, the Me Too movement highlighting uh, the the victimization that, that many women have suffered. And finally, uh, the police videos revealing police brutality against African-Americans, just as civil rights activists had been saying for years. And I, and I really felt like I was uh, you know, ignoring a lot of these trends because I had been I brought, you know, I came up in, in this conservative movement where the the the. Uh, 
the, the trope is to denounce political correctness and ignore the underlying problems that the so-called politically correct people are trying to address. And, you know, I, I think the scales have really fallen from my eyes in the last year or two, and it's made me realize, that, wait a second, you know, the real problem in America is not political correctness, although, I mean, I'm not certainly in favor of infringing on free speech, but there's also real problems with sexism, racism, homophobia, xenophobia, all these other trends, and we need to address them. We can't just uh, turn a blind eye to those. So how did you um, come to the conservative movement? Like what, what initially attracted you to that? And you, were, you should say you were born in, in Russia, is that right? Correct. Uh, I was born in Russia, came here in 1976. And I think, you know, like a lot of refugees from communist countries, you know, think about the Cubans, for example, uh, or for that matter, the, the South Vietnamese. I was drawn to the more anti-communist party in the United States, which was, of course, the Republican Party. And well, I grew up in the night. Well, can, can, I, can I ask, like, yeah. coming to the United States from Russia in, in that time, I mean, it was somewhat unusual for, for Jews to be able to leave. I mean, the most Jews who came to the United States from Russia seem to have come like in the late 80s and early 1990s. No, um, there was actually a large wave of immigration that in the 1970s, thanks to Actually, neoconservative foreign policy, the Jackson-Vanek Amendment sponsored by Senator uh, Henry Scoop Jackson of Washington State, who was a Democrat, but a Cold War hawk, and he pushed legislation that tied trade with the Soviet Union to their willingness to allow Jewish immigration. This was something that was opposed by realpolitikers like Richard Nixon and Henry Kissinger, but uh, it it won the support of Congress, and that's what allowed a, a, a wave of Russian Jewish refugees to leave the Soviet Union in in the mid seventies, including uh, me and my family. And and where did you guys end up? In Los Angeles. Uh, what did your your parents do for work? Uh, my parents, oddly enough, both uh, taught uh, English in the Soviet Union. Uh, arriving here, my father worked as a translator and eventually got into advertising, and then my mother. Uh, switched from teaching uh, English to Russians to teaching Russian uh, to Americans uh, working. And she's been for many, many years a a professor at uh, UCLA. So uh, obviously, was it a fairly political household then that you grew up in? I mean, having sort of been your, your life upended by, by politics, I would have to imagine. So not, I wouldn't say that, especially I think my my, I mean, I didn't grow up with both parents. My parents were divorced, and I saw my father in the summer times. He was, you know, quite right wing and, and far more right wing than I ever became, frankly. Uh, you know, he he always thought that I was a, uh, uh, you know, a, a pinko sympathizer <laughs> because I was never right wing enough for him. I, my, I don't think anyone mother, would confuse you with a uh, pinko sympathizer, Max. Right. Uh, well, that shows you shows you where my father was politically, <laughs> that he would think that. Uh, but my mother has always been pretty moderate, uh, mainstream, not not especially political. So, uh, But I think I was really influenced as a kid by reading publications like National Review on the Wall Street Journal editorial page. And I really imbibed their worldview. And of course, this was the time of Ronald Reagan, and he was a very magnetic and and popular figure who made conservatism cool when I was growing up in the 1980s. And, uh, you know, it's taken me, I would say, you know, 40 years or so to develop truly independent views and to uh, break out of this conservative cocoon where I still, you know, I still agree with, you know, mainstream conservatives on some things, but I certainly don't blindly follow along with them. Uh, 
uh, on, on many issues, and you know, I'm not afraid to speak out anymore. So, can you identify sort of an early moment in which you decided to uh, push back against sort of conservative orthodoxy in your own sort of worldview and in, in your own how you sort of thought about the world? Well, there have been. I mean, I've always been fairly independent. I mean, for example. In uh, 2004, when the Abu Ghraib scandal arose in Iraq, uh, even though I had supported the the war effort, I called for Don Rumsfeld's resignation, which shocked a lot of people in the Republican Party because he still had very strong support. But I thought he was just failing as defense secretary, and I didn't mind saying so. And, And certainly by 2006, I was willing to say that we were not winning in Iraq, which again was anathema to to many mainstream conservatives. But I would say that, you know, my real foray into, I think, more more independent thinking has occurred in recent years uh, where I, you know, I no longer am associated with any conservative publications. I no longer draw a paycheck from the right. And uh, that's, you know, enabled me to to kind of go off on my own and 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 to rethink issues like gun control, where, for example, I just don't understand why how people in the Republican Party can think it's okay uh, to have, uh, you know, millions of assault weapons in private hands leading to all these mass shootings, one after another, a problem faced by no con- no other country in the world. Uh, so, you know, that's that's one example of, of rethinking things. And then, of course, my opposition to Donald Trump, where, you know, I thought from day one that he was an appalling human being who was not qualified to be president, and I've been shocked and dismayed to see how many of my former Republican uh, friends and, and conservatives have been willing to to go along with Trump uh, in spite of, you know, daily evidence of his unfitness uh, for office. So uh, I'm wondering um, if you would agree that sort of the – that that sort of Trump, the advent of of Trump and Trumpism is sort of what's causing you and and some other you know former conservatives or neoconservatives. I, I don't like want to pigeonhole you. I don't know how you would would describe yourself, but certainly you're someone I would uh, in previous years have considered you know a neoconservative intellectual uh, who uh, you know along with like Bill Kristol and and others um, are breaking with Trump, breaking with the Republican Party. Um, but I'm wondering like how sustainable is is that break um like if trump is gone will you and will bill crystal and will others sort of sort of coalesce around a republican again and sort of let bygones be bygones well i can't speak for anybody else uh i can only speak for myself and i think it's hard to predict the future but you know i'm a former republican and i find it hard to believe that i will rejoin the party unless by some very unlikely miracle it's suddenly led by you know, somebody with uh, with pretty good anti-Trump credentials like Jeff Flake. I mean, I certainly can't imagine uh, backing uh, one of these Republican senators uh, who have rolled over for Donald Trump and who have, you know, called him unfit for office one day and then endorsed him the next. I, that's just unimaginable to me. I, I think that's just a, a travesty and, and an abdication of, of responsibility, which I can't possibly endorse in the future. At the same time, you know, I'm also worried about where the Democratic Party is is headed because uh, I don't agree with people like uh, Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren. They're they're too far to the left for me. I I mean, I would love it if there were a centrist Democrat who would arise. I mean, I actually I mean, I voted for Hillary Clinton because I thought she was a centrist Democrat. But I would love it if another one would arise to to lead the Democratic Party. 
uh, or failing that, I, I think it would be great to see a principled center-right party uh, because the Republican Party is descending ever further into the swamps of, of prejudice and bigotry and extremism. And I, I would love to see a, a, a center-right party that's truer to uh, conservative principles. But I also recognize it's very hard for a third party to arise within the American political system. Um, so, so could we go back to, to your uh, early days and in, in your uh, education and, and how you decided to sort of become so interested in, in foreign policy? Was there a moment in, in school? You went to Yale, is that right, as an undergrad? Where, no, I went to, I went to or, Berkeley oh, pardon me, pardon me. Yeah. I went to grad school, yeah. Grad school, yeah. So what, sort of what compelled you to, to that path? Like what, what made you want to um, sort of study the world and sort of be an historian and, and be uh, a commenter on it? Uh, that's a great question. I don't know that I have a great answer. I mean, I've always been interested in history and in particular military history. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I went to work at the Wall Street Journal. And while I was working there uh, I, I, on my uh, spare time, I wrote a book about the history of America's small wars, uh, which did reasonably well in 2002. And that was what led the Council on Foreign Relations to hire me, and I've, I've been there ever since, and I've had the freedom to really focus on on foreign policy and national security issues. But I mean, in the past, I'd, I wrote about other things as well, including at the at the journal, I wrote about legal issues for a while. But I've always, you know, for whatever reason, I've always been fascinated by the national security, foreign policy issues and history, you know, in particular, looking at things through a historical perspective. Um, that was, you know, probably just an outgrowth of my reading as a kid. Uh, you know, I remember like in junior high school, uh, reading Winston Churchill's, uh, volumes on, on the history of the second world war, not the usual, uh, reading for a, uh, for a kid of that age. And so I think that, you know, that's, that's influenced me over the years. It's funny how, how the personage of, of, uh, Winston Churchill has been, is so, Profoundly um, influential to many uh, neoconservatives, and, and he's sort of like the 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 f- leading figure. But it's interesting that you gravitated towards him as a, a, a as a young person, as a, uh, a middle schooler. It seems. Yeah, I think there's some truth to that. Um, uh, I'm also somebody who just loves writing, and, and that's that's really my passion more than anything else uh, professionally. I would say, but. I, you know, I long ago decided I'm not very good at making stuff up. So, you know, I've never, I've never felt a vocation to be a fictional writer. I've always wanted to write, but I, I need stuff to write about. So I need to write about nonfiction. And, you know, that's what led me to, uh, to become a writer of op-eds and, and magazine pieces and so forth, commenting on foreign policy and, and the political scene. And that's what led me to become a historian, because that is a very rich stock of material that allows me uh, to to tell narratives, which is what I really enjoy doing. And, and one of the highest accolades I've seen for uh, The Road Not Taken was uh, when Amazon named it a book of the month and said that it reads like a novel. I mean, that's that's exactly what, what I'm trying to achieve because, you know, that's that's what I work on the hardest and what I'm, I, I'm proudest of is is, is my writing. Uh, you, you know, my views change, but I but I hope that my writing uh, only improves. So what what's next for you? What what other books or ideas are you starting to explore now that this book is is over? Well, I've actually uh, started working on a, a biography of Ronald Reagan, but that's going to be a long term project. What uh, what sort of unique aspect are you going to bring to the uh, the biography of Reagan? 
Well, that's a great question. Um, you know, I don't know exactly what form the narrative is going to take yet, because that's really driven by my research, which is still in the fairly early stages. But the impetus for, for focusing on Reagan is that there really is not a great biography of him out there, even though he is, I think, one of the most influential presidents of the 20th century. So I really want to just be able to tell the story. I don't really have any axe to grind. I just want to be able to tell the story better than it's been told before. I mean, it seems like on, on the one hand, you know, Reaganism planted the seeds of the kind of conservative movement today, or I guess you can go back to like Goldwater. Uh, but, but, you know, Goldwater gives way to Reaganism, gives way to like the conservative movement today from which you are been exiting. Yet on the, the foreign policy side, he's still much of a vaunted figure, I would imagine, by, by you for, as you said earlier, for standing up to, to communism and for, you know, his general charisma. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm certainly not a part of the Trumpian Republican Party, but I, I you know, I still have fond feelings for the Reagan-esque uh, uh, party that I grew up in in the 1980s, which stood for things like immigration, free trade, American leadership, a sunny, optimistic view of the world. And, you know, Ronald Reagan was fundamentally different from Donald Trump. Ronald Reagan was a gentleman. He was fundamentally a good person. And I could not possibly say that about Donald Trump. So, uh, but, you know, I'm not approaching Ronald Reagan from the perspective of either an acolyte or a denigrator. It's really from a historical perspective. And one of the things I've always prided myself on is trying to separate my uh, foreign policy and political commentary from my book writing. And, and in the book writing, I really want to try, try to tell a straight narrative uh, and it be as true as possible to the sources and, and, and the truth as I uncover it. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not setting out to romanticize Reagan, and I'm certainly not setting out to knock him down. I'm really just trying to tell the story as, as fairly and completely as, as I can possibly do. Well, what would you say is Reagan's um, most important foreign policy legacy? Well, clearly the defeat of communism, which certainly was not all he's doing, the fact that he got very lucky and that Gorbachev came to power. Uh, but you know, in some, in, in some ways, he also propelled the, the Gorbachev reforms, which led to the collapse of the Soviet Union by reviving the United States economically, by increasing defense spending through his SDI initiative, which you know may have been impractical, but was believed to be a real threat by the Soviet Union. That's the strategic and, defense initiative for people who don't know. Correct. The Star uh, Wars. Missile defense. Yes. Right. Yeah. So, uh, you know, there's no question that when Ronald Reagan became president in 1981, we were at a low point. Uh, both internally and externally, America appeared battered after the Iranian hostage crisis, the defeat in Vietnam. Uh, we were in, experiencing stagflation, and he really, he really turned the country around in a way that I think has won uh, bipartisan accolades in, in succeeding years. Uh, well, Max, I imagine that will uh, be like a many years long uh, reporting and research project for you. It will be. I don't. These these are not uh, fly by night books that I write. I mean, the Lansdale project took five years, and and Reagan will surely take even longer. Oh, well, I look forward to to reading it when it comes out. But in in the meantime, I look forward to reading more of of your commentary, and again, just sort of seeing how you evolve intellectually in in this 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 era. Uh, I'm curious to see how I evolve intellectually as well. <laughs> All right, and, and delighted to talk about that and other subjects with you. All right, Th thank you so much, Max. Thank you. 
All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Max. And I'm glad we were able to speak. I've been following sort of Max's recent uh, evolution away from Republican politics and, and sort of how he has called into question some previous assumptions he had uh, about the conservative movement from which he came. Uh, so it was, it was all pretty interesting to, to, to see and to hear him explain in his own words. All right. Thank you all for listening and we'll see you soon. And again, a big thank you to everyone who is leaving uh, reviews of the podcast on iTunes. Much appreciated. I will right, we'll see you soon. Bye. The views and opinions expressed in the podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the policies or positions of humanity in action.